Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Mark Guru and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Morning, everybody. You're also joined by our resident GMP expert and master of sciences, David Ballancourt from the GMP Collective. It's awesome to be here. Hey, everybody. And joining us again is Sabrina Fendrick, Chief Public Affairs Officer and Part-Time Miracle Worker for Berkeley Patients Group. Hi, thanks for having me. And a longtime colleague of mine, first time joining the podcast, Antien Fontaine, uh, industry veteran and Vice President of Berkeley Patients Group. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> Thank you, Antien. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today for our popular science and news section. We're going to talk about the recent announcement about the CBD safe for liver is at the end of the CBD safety story from the FDA. We'll talk about a recent article about PCP. Um, it's a pharmaceutical, but it's also an illicit hallucinogen sedative like ketamine. We'll also discuss Delta-8. You can't regulate what you don't test for. And we're going to discuss whether this is just a Another product being ruined by everyone in the hemp industry, or is it going to live up to the hype? And we'll end our news section with talking about mushroom tea and a report showing that women are more likely to use psychedelics than men. For our rapid fire science, we'll discuss cannabinoids, endocannabinoids in sleep, a new article out of the frontiers in molecular science. And our second scientific article will be a study on associations of lifetime psychedelic use and their markers of physical health and users of said psychedelics. We will end today with a game that we are calling Guess Which Politician Was High When They Said This, so be sure to stick around for that. All right, we'll be right back in about 30 seconds. We're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So, as reported by Nutritional Ingredients, uh, the study was commissioned in response to the FDA's requests, and basically there's been findings from 839 participants consuming a range of oral CBD products. And this study was supported by 12 companies, including Estera Labs, Care by Design, CBD Distillery, Canaway, Medterra CBD, the list goes on and on. Each brand provided funding, products, certificates of authenticity, and assisted with recruitment of adult U.S.-based consumers. Uh, basically, the preliminary endpoint of the study was to observe potential liver effects in adults ingesting oral forms of hemp-derived CBD for a minimum of 60 days. Um, because there was some evidence in clinical studies where people were consuming large amounts of CBD of increases in specific markers of liver health, particularly not so good markers of liver health. But uh, in this follow-up, quote, what we observed to date is no clinical evidence of liver disease in any participants. We observed slight clinically insignificant elevations of liver function tests in less than 10% of consumers irrespective of age, product composition, and form, and the amount consumed. So, is this the end, the final nail in the coffin in the safety discussion about CBD? You know, 
when I think about safety of cannabis products, I often think of David Valancourt, who's out there, you know, visiting all these different operations around the world and assessing their compliance to standards and protocols. Um, David, what's your response to this article out of uh, NutraIngredients.com? Yeah, no, thanks, Jahan. So, you know, first off, data is important. Data is king. So I'm really happy to see this kind of research and this data being uh, produced. It aligns uh, very well, I would say, with the United Kingdom's uh, request. Um, but at the same time, to your point, Jehan, I look at this is more than just CBD, right? We're, you know, we, we've got a, it's, it's a tough thing that the FDA has with getting its mindset out of the active pharmaceutical ingredient idea. What's the other, you know, a lot of the products are, you know, they're full spectrum. They're, you know, a thousand milligrams in a 30 mil bottle. What's the other, you know, 80 or 90% of the ingredients and what are those effects on safety and how are those combined and what are the other cannabinoids in there as well? So, you know, we're, we're looking at a myopic, uh, you know, part of the component. And from a risk reduction standpoint, um, I think we need to keep pushing the FDA forward towards making a, a darn decision, right, in terms of helping to support this industry. Because um, the liver toxicity effects, right, super high levels, right, the amount of, T- of CBD required is super high. And, uh, you know, except for a small amount of the population, that's not uh, generally within the consumption realm. And the fact that there's no long-term adverse effects that they're showing just seems like it's time that we can move past this. Thank you, David. Yeah. You know, it might be time to start to pinpoint which products might be safe, which ones might have certain risks. Um, You know, ATN, you've seen a lot of different products live and die in this industry. Do you, you know, is there something you'd want to say to these companies? Do you, you, would you wish they did more of this type of work? Do you think this is, they're hitting the nail on the head with this type of collaborative effort? Um, Do you have hopes that you'll see more companies coming together to do this type of work for products? I I definitely love to hear some of your thoughts about this and its impact on, on, you know, dispensers. It makes you feel more comfortable if their products are being accessed by your patients. Well, this is kind of multi-level in the aspect that I can't carry. It's just uh, most uh, I can't carry any hemp CBD products currently in uh, my stores in California. I am a fan of studies. I am a huge fan of science. I do believe there needs to be more. I think there needs to be a longer-term study on these. This was a short-term uh, study. Uh, again, we're dealing with single cannabinoids. Uh, I'm not a fan of <clears throat> simple single cell cannabinoids, but that's the FDA's jurisdiction. So I understand that, but we have to understand these are new hemp products. We also know that cannabis is a bioremediator and we need to understand its effects on uh, CBD as well as the uh, other terpenes, diterpenes, etc. cetera. Um, so I've, I believe this study is too small. It needs to be more studies over time. Um, it's a great first start. Uh, and I want to see more companies come forward. However, I get calls all the time from people asking, what CBD product do I get access? And it's usually none of these companies that are listed uh, in this uh, article or any type. It's some sort of company I've never heard of or something that's the tincture in a jar found at a head shop somewhere in some town. And it works for me. Okay. Is it even CBD to begin with is still a question and a reality. A lot of consumers 
are dealing with in real world situations. So I still think a study like this is very small and is specific on CBD, but I would like to see studies on these real world situations that people are ingesting to see what's really going into people's bodies. Um, but again, I'm fine with this study. I think that more uh, legitimate companies that have legitimate hemp products should band together and should pull their resources into further studies. As we know, you doctors are well aware, there's generations of uh, education that has to be done, but there's literally a hundred years of studies that could be started today and we still wouldn't be any closer to understanding what we know anecdotally. I think those are great points. And I'm going to uh, pass it over to Sabrina. You're working in, in policy and government affairs. You know, do you think this type of data is going to be helpful in your work? Or what other things might have been helpful to get out of the study? Like, hey, while you're looking at these people using CBD products, maybe there have been other information that would have actually helped to protect public health and, and move better policies forward. Um, anything you'd like to share? Um, well, I guess while I was listening to you guys talk about this, I, I have a question for you all. Um, this is all American and U.S.-based research, and I know that we're, we in America are, are in, extremely behind on that. But is there, have there been studies similar to this overseas in Israel or Germany? And what have those, like, how much, how much more information is out there on an international level, um, and and why why don't I hear more about those studies if they do exist um, here in the states? So uh, you mentioned the big eye, and um, you know um, I will say that a lot of the clinical work out of Israel is some of the sloppiest I've ever seen in my life. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's all bad. There certainly are some good researchers out there. Um, there's just a lot of hype around even smaller studies in this in Israel, like six people or, or, or fewer. And sometimes they're not even looking at people, they're looking at hospital records, retrospective type stuff. Um, but you do bring up a good point. What about Northern Europe? There, there's a lot of hemp consumption. There's GMP facilities all over. It's a really good question. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Nigam, you had a response to that, or, you know, David, you were, you know, in GMP facilities, and we've discussed this earlier this week um, on Clubhouse, kind of about GMP and other things. I don't know, is there something anyone would like to follow up to Sabrina's question? I think it's a good one. Oh, yeah. Um, so I I do appreciate what Sabrina's asking. And then also, Jehan, I know you're, like you said, you're critical of um, some of the, the studies coming out of, of Israel, for example. So um, I, I don't have like a super specific comment here. I do support um, what ATN was saying uh, about, yeah, this is a reasonable study, but we need more of it. And there's like things behind it too, like where are the test results for the product along with this. The, the one thing I would say, uh, just as like a positive, um, they're noting a result that in fact, not only did they not see a decrease in liver function, they saw an uh, elevated um, an elevation in liver function um, in some of these cases. So uh, you know it, it's it's nice to see, but I'm not I'm not going to like stake anything major on this little study here. So okay, just to follow because I, I kind of wanted to clarify on that context because that would sort of determine how I feel more. And so now understanding that there isn't a ton of um, 
uh, I guess, legitimate uh, data out there. Um, you know, like Nagam said, I think that there's there should be a, a like a broader context. Um, you know, when discussing these studies, I'm sure um, that a lot of these hemp companies that are pushing um, bills across the country are loving the study and going to use it and take advantage of the fact that most people don't know anything about cannabis and, and cannabinoids and, and any aspect of the health impacts. But like, you know, the, the test results of the actual products that they were ingesting um, and what other what else was in there and what effect that might have had. And if were they all consuming the same CBD product um, or were they just picking and choosing their own? There's, there's a lot more out there that um, I would like to know, but it's great. Like just sort of, I, I support any kind of research and, and data. And if this is the starting point, then cool. Um, but we need to dig a little deeper than just this one isolated small pool Absolutely. You know, anyone with a credit card and a survey monkey account can do a 60 day observational study where people self report products. And hey, like, why bother testing them for other drugs they might be using um, or how much they're using? Um, certificates of authenticity are nice. I can print one and mail one to you today. Uh, but a certificate of analysis uh, might even be more helpful and more revealing about a product. And certificates of analysis might be the word of the day because we will be talking about Delta-8-THC later, and that will come out. But, but speaking of interesting things about drugs, I would love to talk about and take a hard shift to something else from vice, and that is PCP, phenylcyclidine, angel dust. This is sort of a forgotten drug. But what was surprising about seeing this recent coverage in vice, especially with all the interest in ketamine and you know, there are, there are clinics in the U.S. now, like I think in, in Illinois, we discussed on the podcast previously, where you can like go get your medical cannabis card renewed and also get a ketamine infusion while you're there. Um, it, it's really kind of an interesting time for some of these, these substances. But what was interesting to me was to learn um, that when it comes to DUIs, uh, PCP is actually one of the most common substances found. So over a quarter of DUI tests in some cities come up positive for the drug, and a third of arrestees which is positive for any drug in Washington, D.C., have PCP in the system. This is the highest rate in the U.S., and more than double the proportion of those testing positive for opioids. So, Nigam, um, what is going on here with this substance? Is this just sort of something that's been working in the shadows, or is this like the next big drug that all the executives are going to be using to like really make breakthroughs in their meetings. Wow. Yeah. Um, Silicon Valley is uh, tired of the LSD micro microdose and they're, and they're ready for the PCP microdose uh, revolution. Right. So, um, <laughs> and actually, no, but so I'm glad you asked me first, Jayhan. So uh, for the listener, I actually came across this article. I sent it to Jayhan and asked him to include it in the show because <laughs> I thought it was just such um there, there's several reasons that I wanted to talk about this. One is because um, we're always talking about the psychedelics renaissance, legal, medical, psychedelic, FDA pipeline, psychedelics renaissance, right? Um, there's the cutting edge of that because it was already legal is ketamine. So we see all these people setting up ketamine clinics and, and building 
all this stuff with the thought of future using psilocybin and future using LSD and these other drugs, but they're starting with ketamine right now. So what is ketamine? What classification of drug is it? It is a uh, hallucinogenic sedative. And that's why it gets this classification as a psychedelic because it can have hallucinogenic effects in, in uh, high doses, right? Um, now, what other common hallucinogenic sedatives are there? Well, I can only think of one, and it's PCP. But nobody talks about PCP. Um, and then I saw this article in Vice, and they're talking about it. It's so interesting. Another theme of the show is we talk about the drug culture from before. And this thing that's happening with the liberalization of cannabis policy, liberalization of psychedelic policy, the liberalization of just decriminalizing drugs in general, like we're saying in Oregon, um, it's allowing people to talk about these things and get it out there. So one thing that really struck me in this article was that they were highlighting how PCP usage is really like niche. They're saying, I think in DC, it's really big. And then you go 80 miles down the road to Baltimore and there's no PCP usage. So it just was like, um, I don't know, it just seemed like good uh, conversational material in this whole context that I've just kind of highlighted. Absolutely. And one of my favorite quotes from this article is, PCP has remained a, quote, significant drug of choice in LA, um, which is interesting. It's, it's both talked about in this article as a means of self-medication, as a niche drug of the streets. Um, I mean, I guess it can be both. There's lots of things that are both. Um, you know, ATN, um, you know, you're you know, a stranger to the evolution of drug policies and stigmatization. Um, what are some of your thoughts on this coverage of Vice? Do you think they did a good job kind of balancing out the, the information here? I mean, it's a lot of information about PCP. <laughs> I got quite a, a bit from this article, actually, and thought it was rather interesting. It immediately made me think of uh, back in 1994, I was working as a volunteer with the Cannabis Action Network, and we were given a legalized PCP rally flyer and. uh <laughs> <laughs> in San Francisco. So, of course, uh, we had to kind of go out in the periphery and see what was going to happen. It turned out to be a joke. No one was there. No one showed up. There was no organizer. But uh, I've always have heard about PCP. It's a, not a drug I've ever done. But I think what they have broken out specifically, and mm -hmm. as you were referencing, uh, Nigam, specifically ketamine, uh, as we know, I, I'm a combat veteran myself. I work with a group called the Veterans Action Council, and we're actually working on standard operational procedures as well as creating safe spaces for you know, certain psychedelics. And one of those is ketamine because it is prescribed currently uh, even by a nasal spray uh, via the v VA. So uh, it is very interesting how PCP is never really caught on uh, in the large sense how it is sociologically regional, much less it's more U.S. regional because PCP wasn't really used as a pharmaceutical on the world stage as much as it was in the United States. So there isn't also much um, reference to it internationally, whereas ketamine, of course, has become more predominant for it because of access and availability, whereas, as you read in this article, PCP is also kept... Uh, very underground with specific um, uh, mafioso type characters or uh, illicit uh, operators who uh, keep a very close 
eye on the uh, competition, much less the quality of the product that's going out. So I find it extremely fascinating that they're finding it so high in DC, but no reference to it in Baltimore. I mean, that is just, it goes against when I, I lived in DC back during the crack epidemic and needless to say, crack was universal and accessible throughout. So I just, again, as a drug culturalist as myself and that I've always found sociology, sociology fascinating around the subcultures of, um, uh, you know, uh, harder drugs than cannabis per se and where they fall in line. So I, I, there's a lot to this article, as you stated, and uh, there's more that you, we could, you know, probably discuss. But those are the takeaways I came away from it, which um, uh, also to see how regional things stay as opposed to with the other epidemics that we've seen with uh, heroin and crack become so endemic throughout the world, whereas this particular drug has its own little niche all throughout the United States. Absolutely. And one of the things I think about when you're talking about why hasn't this taken off, you know, the illicit market always doesn't have product safety in mind, but they know how to create repeat customers. And in this article, it really seems to drive home this image of all these cigarettes dipped in PCP. I'm like, hey, why don't you take the world's most addictive substance and dip this other drug in it? That 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 might work to get people using it. Um, just slip it in with all the with a very addictive drug, and then it works. Um, you know, I wish our colleague Dr. Sarah Jane Ward was here to discuss this, especially the interaction of nicotine and PCB, because her thesis was on studying speedballs and studying drug combinations. And so she loves talking about the drug combinations. So we'll have to we'll have to have her back for a PCP part two discussion. But before we move on to uh, our Delta eight time. Um, I want to give, you know, Sabrina or David, you guys had any comments um, on this article? Um, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. Um, just the hyper-localization of uh, this trend and how, you know, like, like you guys said, DC has um, a, a huge use trend and then Baltimore doesn't, but you hop over Baltimore and you go to Philly and Philly does. And so um it's sort of, it, it was just interesting. I kind of came to the conclusion that it really had to do with sort of the intersection of drug culture, um, you know, hyper-local socio-environmental factors and um, access networks, uh, which was also something they touched on. Like if, if there's, if it's hard to get in, in places where it's not um, highly prevalent in use and much easier to get, and there's sort of these built-in local distribution chains um, that that people utilize in those local places and then also how much influence like the media has had on this and that's sort of one of the reasons they said why it hasn't um you know translated uh, across the atlantic or to other countries or even really taken off that much uh here in the states and um the other one was i guess the the manufacturing of it was difficult and and moving it it sounds like it has to be this whole complicated liquid um, and that can be hard to move and distribute. So it's very much like the sort of local closed loop system that is uniquely American. Um, <laughs> I'm always fascinated by by trends that are uniquely American, um, which is, you know, also the vape crisis was something that was uniquely American. And we didn't really see happen uh, in other countries, which is a whole nother discussion on its own. But um, yeah, those that were is- some 
things that stood out to me for this article. That's, that's a really good point. You know, and I forget the United States is number one in a lot of things like PCP use and vape related <laughs> illnesses. Um, Nigam, th this PCP article began with you submitting it to the, the podcast for discussion. So might as well end with you. Uh, what, uh, closing comment on this article before we move on. Yeah, the one other thing I wanted to highlight that was really interesting about this is um, I noticed this dynamic of things going from like underground to uh, medical or FDA, for example, you know, LSD or psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, all these things, right? Um, and then PCP was actually developed by a pharma company as a sedative purposely for medical use, but then it fell out of favor and they didn't use it. And now it's only a street drug. So it was just, uh, it's kind of interesting to see the former street drugs become, you know, everyone is, you know, we see the, the growing of the psychedelics industry behind these former street drugs. And then you see former pharma drugs as only street drugs. So I, I just want to highlight that dynamic. I think it's another interesting layer. Absolutely. And speaking of interesting layers, let's talk about how hemp companies are spraying Delta-8 THC that they're synthesizing in, I guess, bathtubs, uh, and then spraying it onto products and giving it to consumers. Uh, you know, much like how we all hated the synthetic cannabinoid epidemic uh, about 10 years ago, where very similar practices were occurring, people just sort of um, making up compounds and giving it to the public as, as guinea pigs. Um, the Oregon Liquor Control Commission has actually put out a news piece about their growing concerns about access to intoxicants at neighborhood convenience stores like Delta 8 THC products. Now, these are not clean processes. I've looked at certificates of analysis, and there's 30, 40. This report from Oregon for even up to 50% of unknown compounds being made. Um, and it's not that surprising. You know, these are not, these are people who are pretending to be chemists, taking CBD pouring um, some sort of liquid concoction on it to catalyze a reaction and then drying that out and putting it in products. Um, and, you know, when Delta-8 is consumed, it does produce a very similar effect to Delta-9. Uh, some people say it's a little more mild, but, you know, if you think you're consuming, you know, you really don't know what you're consuming and how much you're consuming and what the long-term effects are. Does Delta-8 THC occur on the plant? Yeah, maybe in like 0.0001% of the material, if that. Um, it's a very, very small amount. There's no really economically viable way to extract it and produce it. Now, um, it really seems like there is a window that is closing on this loophole and governments are going to come down uh, with fire and, and fury. But Delta-8 also might have some therapeutic utility, some uses is it going to be ruined for everybody? Like, you know, uh, Sabrina, do you think that the, the regulated cannabis industry, if people are following the rules, are going to be allowed to work with Delta-8 and have Delta-8 products to fulfill this need? Is it looking like maybe a, there might be a potential labeling change where they just include that in the total THC content? Will Delta-8 THC, I mean, what's the status in California right now with these products? Huh. Well, um, I uh, in California currently um, under the the cannabis 
THC industry supply chain, I, I think is how we'll, we can refer to that now. Um, anything that comes from any compounds or cannabinoids that are derived from a licensed cannabis plant in California is allowed to be sold um, and moved through the legal supply chain. So um, Delta-8 extracted, and so, and then all of the rules that accompany that in terms of, um, you know, any labeling has to match um, certificates of analysis and, and all of that. So uh, that area is pretty safe, and I, I definitely trust um, the products that move through uh, the cannabis industry, the licensed cannabis industry. Um, on the other hand, we there's also, uh, you know, I mentioned last time there's this bill, there's a couple bills actually right now that are have been introduced and are slowly moving through the legislature um, to create this parallel industry, uh, hemp-based industry that is, would um, consist of products that have everything that a cannabis product can have other than the THC. And the you know, I guess some, it's technically not legal since the, you know, the federal government hasn't approved California's hemp plan. Um, the state hasn't passed any legislation, but you wouldn't know that it's illegal um, if you came to California and went, came to Sacramento or, you know, the Bay Area, there's, there's uh, CBD stores everywhere. They, you know, uh, that has been sold a lot. Now this Delta 8 is starting to pop up in uh, different shops. Uh, non-cannabis shops. So uh, the discussion is now, you know, what should there be diff two different lanes of quality control for licensed cannabis plants and their the products that are derived from them and then hemp derived products and hemp derived cannabinoid products. And the, you know, Delta-8 is the latest trend, just like CBD was one of the trend uh, over the past few years. And the thing that's been driving me nuts is that we are looking at this on a like cannabinoid by cannabinoid basis. And I, I think that that is a very bad um, approach to creating policy because it, it and it, it keeps reminding me of, of this K2 spice crisis. Right, that, you're um, going to create a THC isomer arms race where they're going to be like, okay, well, we're going to hydrogenate this compound. Okay, well, we're going to add uh, another ring to this compound. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to add a piece of gold to this compound. Oh, yeah, well, add some bromine. Like, why don't we just wait until we make something really dangerous that kills somebody? Um, you know, so it's just going to like, where does it end with exactly. these products? Um, exactly. Yeah. And the so debate has been really like, at least I've been trying to push the debate of how can we address this, this as a, a comprehensive policy issue and not do this piecemeal. Um, and I realize it's difficult for all of us that lawmakers are not scientists. I'm not a, you know, policy people aren't scientists mostly. Um, and, it, you know, when we're coming down to this end and we were looking at this bill um, that says it basically, uh, and, you know, what's the definition of, of, um, THC and what's regulated there. And so, you know, we're like Delta 9 THC is mentioned, but then there's also Delta 8 and there's Delta 10. And what does that mean? And are they subject to those rules? And, you know, at that point, I, I was like, we need to bring a scientist into this conversation. I mean, we, have, we can't, you know, talk about this kind of policy without actual experts. Um, but where I find sort of the, the common denominator on a macro level is psychoactivity. And psychoactivity in terms of like public health is where 
policy should be determined and the what should be grouped in, into different areas um, in terms of regulation should be determined by the, the psychoactivity of those compounds. Um, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and when consumers don't know what they're getting, and I'm going to say something, it's a little shocking, but I just want to emphasize that this is from unregulated gas station convenience store products, not from licensed dispensaries, products that have required testing and oversight. So if you go into the FDA FAIRS database, um, which is the Federal Adverse Events Reporting System, and you search for Delta-8, you, you know, they have five different search terms for Delta-8 that are codified in there. You will find dozens of serious adverse events and associated uh, serious adverse events associated with these products. This is a looming, I think, threat um, to public health. Um, you know, imagine the truck drivers like, ooh, Delta-8 gummy bears. This is non-psychoactive. And it's like in some psychedelic packaging at a gas station, picks it up, starts munching away on a six-hour drive. He's going to main might have a bad time um, because of the lack of, of labeling, lack of information, the lack of standards. And then juxtaposed to that, you have this product that can be sold safely. It can be provided to people. Um, you know, ATN, do you, you know, you know, all cannabis is federally illegal, but I feel like, you know, that you should embrace the regulations that allow us to sell this legally and protect consumers. Um, how do you feel about, you know, our, the, the hemp industry, if you can call that the subsector of the hemp industry that is subverting state regulations and standards and skirting testing? Um, does it, do you feel all right with that? <laughs> or is it like, you know, do you think it's a threat to federal legalization? As much of a threat that bathtub gin was back in prohibition days. Um, this is the realities that we're finding is, uh, unfortunately, we're in the reactionary politics uh, at play as usual here in America. We're not thinking forward as much as thinking reactionally. And we're back to our single cell addiction, which doesn't bode well for the ensemble effect that we have found uh, through our anecdotal as well as myself medically in the use of cannabis specifically. Uh, it's up to the state governments to regulate, uh, but their fear mongering here doesn't help anyone. Uh, they need to actually be using science uh, and they're not doing that because it doesn't bode well for their reactionary politics. So. I thought we had proved along, you know, all along here that prohibition doesn't work, <laughs> but apparently, yeah. you know, uh, old, old dogs die hard, apparently. And as you stated prior, you know, Delta eight is economically uh, viable in the no nonsense world. You know, it has no real availability. However, we do have it. I do carry those products. Uh, my reaction is I didn't find it uh, psychedelic and I use a Delta eight product uh, from Guild Extracts, and I dab it, and it helps me for anxiety or when I have to uh, perform or deal in certain levels. Uh, it helps along the lines of what I would find CBD tends to do. But at the same time, I've never been a fan of isolating single compounds and going along this line because, as we have seen for 20 plus years of providing patients with uh, medicine directly today, 
we see the symbiotic effect of all the other cannabinoids, terpenes, sesquiterpenes, et cetera, and how they have an effect uh, not only on, you know, how uh, high you reach is the high, but how you arrive there as well. And um, we don't find that with these single cell compounds, nor is it even talked about or isolated. So I, I want to see more studies. I don't, I agree with Sabrina. It is challenging to now uh, try to put Pandora's box back together with single cannabinoids, specifically now that, you know, the uh, cannabis has left the, you know, the station per se and trying to play catch up on single compounds as uh, also what sabrina was saying is a very much a large frustration and you're playing whack-a-mole at a uh, at a state level that uh, the fda could come in and you know set some serious guidelines as well as uh, a roadmap for things to take um, we only just started to test for these uh, products and compounds just over 13, 14 years ago. I was part of the U.S. team that was part of uh, actually doing initial testing for THC in the United States. So I do have some experience here, but I'm not a scientist as much as I'm a passionate patient and advocate because I use this plant to help with my Gulf War syndrome. I know symbiotically that a whole flower works better for me than a single cell compound, as well as many other patients find that as well. However, now by having the access of these products and product bases, they can now experiment with these single compounds because you have certain companies that are bringing these to market before even those designations of efficacy, safety are fully understood. You know, I think back of Rabinaban, remember that? Uh, you know? Yeah, Ramona Band. The, Ramona Band. Yeah. And there's yeah. a cautionary tale, you know, uh, of, you know, single cell isolated cannabinoid compound that they thought was going to do well, but in the end, it caused uh, blockages. Uh, and receptors that caused uh, suicides. And that's why they had to actually stop doing. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, exactly. Ramona band, you know, blocked cannabinoid receptors. They thought, oh, if cannabis makes people hungry, this will not make people hungry. And one of the things they forgot is cannabis also makes people happy. And because you have these natural signals that elevate your mood. And hey, if you cut off that, you cut off the rewarding effects of food, you cut off happy signals to the brain, people get sad and people have suicidal thoughts. And so, while you, you cut off the pathway to euphoria, all that's left is dysphoria, slight miscalculation on the drug manufacturer's part. Um, you know, David, you're a GMP guy. And, and when I look at the hemp market, you know, I've been doing some math and the math troubles me. And look, I'd, I'd like to take my old friend, the five gram gummy bear. You know, a THC hemp five gram gummy bear could have 15 milligrams of THC and be legal. Meanwhile, that same gummy bear, I can only get 10 milligrams of. Now you're adding Delta-8 on top of that 15 milligram gummy bear. Like, I mean, wowie, that's got to be some gummy bear that you can't even get in a licensed operator because they're not allowed to sell above that dosing. I mean, I'm a little befuddled here. Help me out, David. Uh, give, me, give me some Buddha GMP guidance here. Sure. Well, let me, let me just kind of, you know, to, to ATN's point, right. Where, you know, they've, they've got some of the products in their stores and 
but you know that's that's a small segment of the market, right? That's maybe five percent, if uh, probably 05 percent, right? We're talking fractions of a percent. Um, so the ninety nine percent, and this is so I have two things I, I want to state. One, um, I don't like playing the blame game, but uh, so I'm going to say this as objectively as possible. When we passed the Agricultural Improvement Act of 2018, the writing was on the wall of the unintended consequences of providing a framework for all these products to go to market. It was just a matter of time before creativity and marketing was going to come into play here, right? And I've seen in Colorado firsthand where the challenge with regulating it, um, back to some of the points of, you know, the THC or the you know, medical cannabis or just the state cannabis programs, um, they have very strict track and, track and trace programs. Those aren't a lot, those aren't required in any, you know, basically any hemp market at this point. Integrating those products into su- the supply chain, there's not an easy framework to do that. And that's where they're struggling. So basically we we've we've incentivized it. And why does this matter? Well, if you're a consumer, you know, I think to the average person out there, even myself before I got into this sphere, you go down the street, you go to 7-Eleven, you assume that because it's an illegal brick and mortar store, that it must be safe, right? Somebody's overseen that, right? Duh. No. What's the difference between this product and, you know, I know a guy or a gal down the street that I can buy this from for cash? There's no difference. No difference, except I would actually argue that the risk is higher because this is being done at scale. So one little mistake isn't just going to make Sabrina feel crappy over the weekend. It's going to make thousands of people feel crappy, right? And that's why these are. This is so important. So we've we've set this this framework up. And to your point, Sabrina, you know we can't be going after this. We're in this reactive game, and that's to the extent of how some politics works. But we're just continuing to chase our tail and. We need to, you know, going back to my point earlier, like we need to take a harm reduction step and the FDA needs to do something just, you know, without going too crazy and overreach with unintended consequences, but without a a framework and some sort of oversight, this is just only going to get worse before it gets better. Right. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah. This is an outgrowth of this arbitrary distinction that, you know, was put in the farm bill, this whole 0.3% that that forces everyone to go down these two completely different paths. Um, And then, I mean, we're not, we're talking about like hemp derived cannabinoids, but what about like lab derived cannabinoids? Synthetic, which is exactly where Delta 8 is coming from, right? We're doing conversions. This isn't, you know, it's a a loose statement to say it's derived from hemp because sure, they took it from the CBD and they did synthetic, you know, chemistry uh, to to get to this result. But uh, we can do a lot of creative things in the lab. Doesn't mean that it's a safe product just because it started from something safe. It shouldn't be, policy should not be based on the origin of the cannabinoid. Um, I think that's sort of the most important point I'm trying to get across to to lawmakers and decision makers. Um, That is the complete wrong way to approach this from a public health perspective. if I can just add to the point, like, let's, I just want to reflect for a second, who's in this room right now? We've got, uh, you know, medical researchers that have done clinical trials some PhDs, you know, masters of science, GMP guy, and some smart P, uh, policy people with decades of experience, both from like personal patient advocates. This is where, you know, back to your point, Sabrina, when you look at the folks that are driving policy, do you see a diverse room like this? Most of the times, no. Without any scientists, without somebody that understands policy, without the ability to translate, this is what we're going to get. We're going to continue to get bad policy because you need the experts in the room to come together in a collaborative effort. And, and listener, if you're freaking out right now, 
don't worry. I'm working on the Colorado Working Group on Delta 8 and on Delaware. But two states is a lot for one scientist um, to deal with right now. But, but uh, you know, uh, ATN, Sabrina, continue fighting the good fight to bring sensible regulations to my home state of California. And, you know, we, we would be happy to help out in any way we can. But, you know, this whole conversation has has my emotional stress levels a little high. It might be time to take some mushrooms, maybe some LSD. And that's what our next story is about. It's about a new survey about why people use psychedelics and what they use it for. I have a feeling that maybe, maybe it's not too crazy that that relaxing glass of Chardonnay might someday be replaced by maybe a relaxing cup of mushroom tea. According to a new market survey by the Global Drug Survey, they found that women are more likely than men to use LSD and magic mushrooms to treat anything from emotional stress to psychiatric condition. Um, if you go to this article, which is in the show notes, listener for the Green Market Report, the 2020 Global Drug Survey will take you to a fun-filled, colorful graph uh, research article breaking down all of these demographics. Um, you know, since the major finding was that there were gender differences and Sabrina's the, oh, <laughs> I assume you identify as a woman. I don't mean to impose any gender roles on you. Um, but, uh, you know, were you surprised with the outcome of this research? I mean, do you think they, you know, you're taking a look, um, at some of the data and the coverage, do you think this is hype or do you think there is something here about, Maybe there is something here about gender differences in psychedelics and what people might use them for. I think it's definitely on point in terms of, of women. Uh, you know, I, there. The, the, okay, so what came to mind first was women. I wonder how how accurate this is because women are more likely to admit to even having mental health problems and then seeking treatment for it. And so, um, this, Absolutely. this, this is a great a, point. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to bet that there are, um, a lot of men that use it and, and maybe don't realize they're using it for, for mental health purposes or don't want to admit that they're using it for mental health purposes. Yeah. They're um, just like, every time I get in an argument with somebody, I pop a tab. I ask it has nothing to do with my emotional issues. Like, <laughs> 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 but it's a great point, Sabrina. Sorry to, to interrupt you there. Please. Continue. Yeah, I mean that was what I kept coming back to, and and I was just like, you know, just society, you know, in society and culturally, um, I think that skewed some of the data. But I, I also think that um, just looking at it from a female's perspective, and not that I speak for all women, but I guess for and. In this podcast, I am currently. Um, <laughs> Don't uh, worry, yeah. will be speaking for all men on the <laughs> I, I, I definitely think that there was something to it. And uh, oh, what was my my other point? I thought this um, this group, this environmental feminism, or psychedelic feminism, was absolutely fascinating to me. Um, you know, sort of embracing the the transformational power of psychic plants. And, and the potential to have a positive impact, you know, I think maybe it, it certainly helps women and women have, you know, all kinds of emotional states. I think men do. They're just not as acknowledged and they're not as, um, you know, studied probably. I don't, I mean, not, not the scientist, but I would imagine just given all the circumstances there. Uh, 
I'm pulling it up real quick because there was one other point I wanted to say. Oh, right. You know, they were talking about psychedelics and sort of uh, nature plant medicines. And of course, my little like cheesy point I came to was like, well, we call it mother nature for a reason, right? And maybe it's sort of, the, it, it goes back to this whole like, you know, mothers and, and women, women and then mothers, which are sort of, you know, nurturing and, and bring this sort of um, comforting experience back. And so these sort of products and, and the, the psychedelic use of it that, that begins that process in the brain of, of um, feeling better and, and helping your mental health status I don't know. I, I don't know if that even makes any sense, but it was just interesting connection between the verbiage and, and how we refer to, you know, uh, Mary Jane or Mother Nature and all of those sort of um, associations. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Sabrina. You know, Nigam, I got to point out to you, you know, I, I want to get your comments on some of the data and an overview of this article. The journalist who covers it, not, not the report, I want to make the distinction, the report and, and the Global Drug Survey, you know, it, it, they do a good job of categorizing things. But this journalist who covered this in this non-peer review, this is just, you know, kind of just out there, right? Made my least favorite faux pas in the psychedelic space. It's like, I only use natural products or I only use plant products. I'm like, well, LSD isn't a plant product. Mushrooms aren't plants either. Uh, you know, so, well, I'm really glad the journalist brought this to the front. It's like... Thanks for confusing me because it's like it's like the old adage when I you know you go to a concert and like you see the guy with dreadlocks and face paint. He's like, I only use natural things except for LSD. Um, <laughs> but but Nick, I'd love to get your thoughts on this article. I thought the data uh, from the 2020 Global Drug Survey was really cool. I mean, it, it goes into depth looking at reasons why. I thought Sabrina's point is spot on. You know, with how people report these things and. and we don't see the questionnaire and how the questions were asked, but definitely I think there might be some reporting bias here, but still I think the distribution, the numbers are interesting because they didn't just look at LSD and magic mushrooms, right? They looked at a whole host of drugs, right? Like, yeah. So i um, happy to respond there. And <clears throat> Jay, how I align with a lot of what you're saying that this is, um, it's not peer reviewed. It's uh, so we don't want to put a, a ton of stake in it. Also, I'm noting that some of the women they're talking about are, you know, C-suite at publicly traded psychedelics companies, which have only even become a thing on earth in like the last nine months or years. So, um, you know, it, it bias where bias everywhere is what I see. So, anyways, um, what the thing I'm taking away from this, really more than any specific or really trying to be critical of it. Is, is a big positive, which is that in three areas that are kind of coming together now in um, the drug culture, in the uh, science space, and in business and entrepreneurship, uh, these are things that in many ways have been dominated by men for a long time, but ever increasingly, we're seeing more and more and more women come into this space. And I think with the... Um, you know, the emerging legality and even ability to discuss openly, like taking these things, um, I think is super helpful. So, so I'll just reiterate, I, I'm not going to nitpick or be critical on this, but I do think that the general trend they're saying of um, more women uh, 
using these substances, discussing them openly, being involved in entrepreneurship surrounding these substances um, is great. And, and, I'm, and I'm supportive of that. If I can just add quickly, you know, I think the takeaway, um, you know, I bring it back to what Etienne said earlier in terms of, you know, uh, prohibition doesn't work, right? And looking at the data, this is over 25 countries, which is pretty cool to have that large of, you know, diversity. Um, but, you know, we need to put, and the fact that a lot of these folks, a not insignificant number of folks are using uh, these these drugs for some sort of therapeutic benefits, right? Whether it's perceived, real, or otherwise, um, we need to focus more research on this and be able to provide safe access to these programs in a controlled manner. And, Again, this is just this is a global thing. This is not a U.S. thing. This is not like a very small microcosm. There's there's data there that suggests we need to consider moving forward in this way. And imagine how much better use of our resources we could uh, have if we focus it on that instead of you know locking folks up or just I don't know any any of the the nonsense that we've seen historically. Let's learn from that. That's that's my soapbox. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David. I, I always love a GMP compliant soapbox. All right, we're going to take a short break with a message or music. I'm not sure which. It will be a surprise. And we'll be right back with our rapid fire science. Hello, I'm Chris Witowski, the co founder and CEO of Solera Bioscience. If you'd like to learn more about how we're bringing a new era in mindful medicine, please visit solera.com or email info at solera.com. That's Solera. P-S-I-L-E-R-A. Thank you. And we're back with Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about the peer-reviewed science articles for this week. And our first peer-reviewed article is coming to us from Frontiers in Molecular Neuroscience entitled Cannabinoids, Endocannabinoids, and Sleep. Sleep, vital function, of the nervous system that contributes to brain and bodily homeostasis, energy levels, or cognitive ability, and other key functions for a variety of organisms. Um, dysfunctional sleep is a major issue, especially in the U.S. Um, and you know the effects of cannabis, uh, cannabis on sleep have been known for a long time. There's increasing use of phytocannabinoids, plant cannabinoids, and other formulations of sleep aids. I've seen you know CBD, marinol tablets. I've seen CBN. Uh, cannabinol, the degradation part of THC, suggested as a sleep aid. Um, however, you know, we don't, science is still trying to figure out how exactly cannabis, for better or for worse, can help sleep. Um, some research has shown that while THC can make it easier to fall asleep, decrease sleep onset latency, it can, um, you know, decrease REM sleep. So there's this kind of balance. Pure THC might help you get to bed quicker, but you're not, maybe you won't get as a deep, you know, rapid eye movement sleep as you might otherwise. Um, you know, sometimes you see a lot of CBD dominant cannabis preparations um, are thought to have effects on sleep, but when you move CBD into the clinic, you really don't see such pronounced um, sedative effects. Um, so however, you know, they've been studying sleep studies in animal models for years we're learning more and more about how the endocannabinoid system works and this was one of the fascinating things in this really long article with lots of cool graphics um, was that throughout the day our endocannabinoid system changes and then maybe atm this is a question for you that i'm going to get to about 
how cannabis might affect sleep at different parts of the day, whether you consume it in the morning or at night. Because when you wake up in the morning, your anandamide levels are three times higher than when you went to bed. And they slowly decrease throughout the day. And then 2-AG picks up you know, after lunch. And then that drops down as anandamide increases that night again. And there's a cycle of interplay of endocannabinoids in the circadian rhythm. And so maybe, you know, if you consume a CBD product, a CBD-rich product during the day, your circadian rhythm won't let it have a sleepy effect. But if you consume it at night, it might, like, or, you know, and then maybe THC will just put you out any, any time of the day. Um, so, you know, 18, I just kind of get your, you know, as a non-scientist, but lover of science, you know, when you look at this research, which is, again, these are scientists in a little ivory tower, they're not at a dispensary, they're not seeing working on products day in and day out. Um, what are your thoughts, especially I'm interested in, in your perceptions and your experiences or, or what you've seen from others in terms of cannabinoids and sleep? Uh, <clears throat> very great question. Um, I'm a big fan of sleep, uh, kind of addicted to it. I have to do it every single day, believe it or not. And uh, I have found that uh, cannabis has been absolutely conducive as a medical patient myself. And it's also one of the main reasons why a lot of people come in and asking and looking for products is especially post 64, we saw a, a large demographic shift of patients, especially older women coming in. And I used to go around, we used to have lines literally around the block originally when uh, everyone was trying to come and learn what all the patients had had for 18 plus years, they had to come see it. So I would go put myself at the back of the line and just listen to people. I'd take off my badge. They didn't know who I was. And I would listen and talk to people. And the majority of, of women that were coming in were retired age. And uh, they uh, didn't have to worry about a, a urinalysis test anymore, um, which is also a, a, a paradigm shift for them. And uh, they have the biggest problem with sleep. You know, they have hot flashes, various other issues. And it was predominantly um, one of the specific reasons they came in looking for as what they had heard regarding CBD THC blends. Uh, I myself have regulated my own personal sleep using uh, cannabis for decades. Uh, it helped exponentially when I was uh, forcefully evicted by the federal government in 2012. <clears throat> and uh, we moved and then the U.S. government came after us again. And I actually sued the federal government. Needless to say, that was a great deal of anxiety and stress that came along with it. And I had another friend of mine I had uh, watched get arrested and go through the system. And they made sure that he couldn't have access to his cannabis. And it caused him sleep deprivation at a level that drove him nearly insane. It was very traumatic to watch and frustrating uh, because I could use my medicine, but he was federally forbidden and at a moment's notice had to actually go pee into a cup. So uh, I have anecdotally been a huge fan of cannabis in the sense of uh, regulating it throughout the day and day usage. Well, I have the tolerance of a bull because I've been using uh, cannabis and cannabinoid products for decades. On top of that, I, I take a uh, all of my concentrates and I actually mix them in an autoclave into one product. So I have a full cannabinoid spectrum 
that I find works for me. Now, I don't necessarily spike that with CBD. I will take uh, like a straight CBD isolate or a product uh, when I need to go to sleep. I've been working all throughout the day and I need to shut down. I will find a straight CBD product helps put me in that relaxed state where I can uh, slip off into sleep. I, I can also find that same availability because I deal with post-traumatic stress from my war experiences. I still have nightmares and experiences where I will wake up in the middle of the night and where I find THC uh, specifically tends to help me put my, myself back into the mindset uh, to sleep as opposed to the CBD specific. So it's also, um, I have learned through my listening to my body and my usage have found certain compounds at certain times to be used specifically that help enhance the experience that I am seeking in the sense of trying to get a good night's sleep, or I need to shut down now so that I can be up in the morning. And of course I don't drink coffee. I don't use coffee. So cannabis is my coffee. So I use cannabis early, you know, in the day, but at the same time, you know, I'm now an older American in my 50s. So, you know, I can't say I'm not adverse to a, a nap or feeling nappy in the afternoon every <laughs> once in a while. So I can't say how much of that effect is cannabis specific <laughs> as much as it may be an age demographic per se. So, uh, but <clears throat> I would love to see uh, further research, but uh, anecdotally and from firsthand experience, as well as from hearing from, uh, you know, thousands of patient testimonies, uh, cannabis specifically and cannabinoids in the full spectrum seem to assist people in getting a solid night's sleep. Well, you know, I like that, Atan, because, you know, you gave a great overview. And, you know, while you may get, you know, who doesn't want to take a nap around three o'clock in the afternoon? Um, but cannabis isn't like going to just put you to sleep, you know, if you are used to its effects um, in the middle of the day, if you're using it as a medicine. or Well, if you have a tolerance as well, yeah. if you have no tolerance, and I give it to somebody. Yes, I've knocked people unconscious first time using cannabis. So, I mean, that effect is, as we know, people can get moody, sleepy, et cetera. However, a consistent user, I think, is a different animal that has not been followed mm. uh, throughout studies per se. They're going for either, you know, uh, you know, uh, doctor's records, what was in urine, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to following along specific uh, known cannabis users over a long period of time to uh, figure out, you know, sleep, sleep patterns, et cetera. I think that it's a really great point because obviously you give anyone a new drug, you know, imagine someone never is like, you know, 40 years old, has never used caffeine you give it to them at any point in the day. I bet their sleep schedule is going to, going to change a little bit. It's going to be challenged. Um, you know, David, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on this, on this research? Is it, is it, is this good bedtime reading? Or is there something here? I mean, I imagine you must come across a lot of clients that are trying to develop products or market or, or do GMP products that include indications like sleep. But does this help provide you with answers or questions? Oh, my God. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, first off, that's a tough act to follow. Um, and, you know, I appreciate your sharing all of your stories, ATN, and, you know, your, your experiences and service and everything. Um, I think that's what, 
you know, those stories help level back to even, you know, Sabrina's point where she called out in the research earlier, you know, two times more women than men, you know, report, you know, mental health reasons or mental health issues. I think that's a bunch of BS because it's really just a matter of a bunch of egotistic, you know, people with egos and not being willing to share, say, look, yeah, we all have, you know, to, from different experiences, um, issues that we, and coping mechanisms that maybe aren't just published or widely accepted or talked about. Um, so thanks for sharing your story to, to the sleep point, right? Um, you know, there, there's function structure, you know, like claims, label claim issues that start getting involved, kind of to your point, Jehan, where I watch folks every day get in trouble and get, uh, you know, there's like almost weekly now warning letters and then 43 letters, which if you're not careful, you'll get both. Uh, as follow-ups from the FDA, if you're starting, starting to make claims, you need data to be able to make any sort of claims. You know, there's these bliss, calm, sleep, all these products out in the market. Um, we need to be careful because as, as the points go, you know, what works for one person might not work for the other. And uh, at what dose? And what are the other kind of confounding factors? Um, you know, we don't want to get into an ambient situation, right? Where, great, oh, well, it works great for ATN. Here, Sabrina, you take it. Great, go crash into the mailbox uh, in your neighbor's mailbox the next morning because of the lingering effects because of how it affects men versus women differently. Like, we need to be really careful. Um, there, I, I don't know. At the end of the day, I think I'm left with more questions then answers, um, you know, the points that we want to look at from a research standpoint, anybody that wants to kind of go down this route, you know, what, what parameters, what metrics are we talking about here? What, you know, ratios of cannabinoids, what is full spectrum? You know, we need to define all of that to be able to show reproducibility. And then, you know, you mentioned a couple of points, Jahan, like, you know, what are we talking about in terms of sleep? Are we talking about quality of REM sleep, number of minutes in REM sleep, you know, I can, I can sleep for 12 hours, but if it's a really shallow sleep without a lot of REM, we know that, you know, that's where you kind of recharge. That's where your brain processes your information from the day. So what's your REM cycles looking like and, you know, the different stages of sleep. So we need to take a methodical approach there. And this is a great first step, but those are the kinds of items that without that, we're all just kind of sitting here saying, well, I don't know. I think this, I think that, you know, and, and to your point, maybe route of administration might be important. We're, you know, inhaling some, some cannabis in the evening yeah. works better versus maybe a sustained release patch versus, you know, a tincture. Uh, what is going to be the best way to ensure people get this, the thing they're looking for in sleep? Um, you know, you just want to get some shut-eye, you get some shut-eye. But if you need that deep sleep or... You know, maybe it's about being in that shell suit. Like if you're trying to recover from an injury or a surgery, maybe you don't necessarily want to go in a deep sleep where you're tussling about and having vivid dreams. Maybe you just want to be in a light sleep where you're, you know, you're, you're just kind of almost meditative in a sense. So you know, I think that is a good question is what are we calling sleep? And then one thing I also want to drive home is this article talks about the endocannabinoid system. It only mentions THC and CBD. There's no mention of any research that exists on CBF. So, um, you know, this is, and this, this paper makes me think of something uh, a really kind of odd about the cannabis space. Um, everyone goes to the dispensary to ask them about how the products work. I'm sure you're familiar with this ATF people, but it's like, you didn't make the product. You didn't grow it. You, you're there as a safe, a kind of like a filter for good products and products that meet certain standards. And I'm like, and that's always cracked me up. You know, someone like grows a cannabis plant and is like, hey, what do you think this is good for? It's like, I don't know, shouldn't you tell me? Like, you're the guy who produced it. Usually the people supplying the products 
provide some sort of information about them. Like, hey, here's Xanax. Why don't you take that out for a spin? Tell me what it does. That would never, never happen ever for, for other products. Um, usually it's, you know, the milk industry studies milk and tells us that it's, it's good for bones and things like that. Um, but, you know, uh, and Nigam, I wanted to get, you know, some of your thoughts on this study. Um, you know, and people are really interested in developing sleep products. Do you think this article is a good kind of like first step or, or is this just like a little too technical and there might be some more basic concepts to get a hold of first? So I, I think it's a blend and I'll try to be brief because I know we're running a little low on HLI time, but um, I really enjoyed that, how they delved into the fundamental mechanisms of how sleep works and then like the different uh, kind of known uh, existing scientific methods for tracking that. So that was all excellent. And then, um, but on the flip side, everything that uh, ATN and that Dave said is super true. What is a person's tolerance? What is in the product? Um, what is happening that day? What time of day? It's just all these different facets. So the um, thing that's kind of like in the back of my head is this just lends itself to um, beyond cannabis, beyond sleep, is that personalized medicine is like a really meaningful thing. And uh, ATN was even sharing about his own blend of his concentrates and he's handling his personalized medicine in his own way using uh, tools that he has uh, in the cannabis space. And and that's excellent. Um, But there's a lot of folks who are going to trust or rely on the dispensary or on the pharmacy or on the product label or on the marketing claims because maybe they don't know better. So um, there is there is a lot to learn here. It's a lot a big big uh, big gap to build a bridge over here. But um, you know, the, I, I thought the paper was cool, and uh, I thought their follow up recommendations were appropriate. So let's see what they put out next year. Let's see what comes next. All right, um, absolutely. So speaking of what comes next, I want to move on to our final article for peer review before we go to our our game. And that's on a study called uh, entitled Associations Between Lifetime Classic Psychedelic Use and Markers of Physical Health in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. Um, this is a fascinating article. And basically, there's been significant research on the mental health effects of classic psychedelic use. It seems to be all the um, you know, startups seem to be focusing on. Let's, you know, it's like, hey, we don't understand how the brain works. Let's start studying that. Let's start disrupting activity of the brain and and maybe something good will happen. But what about just other health parameters? Do you feel good? Does you get muscle aches or you have a more higher prevalence of other diseases if you use psychedelics or not? What about the body? I know the brain is part of the body, but, um, you know, this this present study was said to investigate the associations again of, of markers of physical health kind of putting the mental health aside. And Sabrina, I don't know if you could just tell us a little bit about this article. Did they, they look at a lot of people? What what period of time? What could you share us about this article from the Journal of Psychopharmacology? You know, I I was mostly interested in the the connection that they found that the people that used um, psychedelics were found to be happier and to have less... Um, medical issues. And that, that was, uh, really, really interesting to me because, uh, you know, we've been raised or I, you know, those of us that were raised in the dare generation, um, were taught the complete opposite. 
and that, you know, drugs are going to ruin your life and destroy everything. I still hear that from people um, from time to time, unfortunately, but uh, yeah, all that they have lower odds of being uh, overweight or obese, just all of these um, health health issues were, were less prevalent among people that had tried psychedelics. And, um, I don't know, I guess there's a lot of reasons why that could be the case. Um, you know, perhaps there are people that use psychedelics are more open to seeking alternative treatments. Their, their mind, they're more, they have a different perspective on, on life and context and, and their environment and surroundings, which, also affects their physical health just because we know that there is a definitely a connection between mental health and physical health. And um, like, I, I think I brought up in the last time I was on here, how, uh, and, and you mentioned Western medicine really just looks at physical health and there isn't really much, uh, or there hasn't been much research or understanding on, on how mental health impacts physical health. And then I've, you know, when you're, you're happier, you're less likely to get sick and, you know, it, it sort of lowers your threshold of, um, or raises your threshold, sorry, of, uh, you know, contracting a cold or getting over a cold. Um, I think that was mentioned in this article where like the people, I think it was this article, this, the people that um, got sick, but used the psychedelics were, were actually less likely to get sick and um, more likely to recover quicker if they did. Uh, and I, that was that this article? I don't know, but I think it's they, they, they reference that, that that research. It's, it does review a lot of that data in here, but absolutely, that was like you're right on. They're like they they are seeing these other trends and they're trying to explain them. I mean, a- absolutely, Sabrina. Like they're trying to say, like, okay, you know, you take psychedelics. What do we know so far? And that was one of like the kind of things that they teased out of the literature was connecting these dots. Um, and then they, they got their own sample size. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, you did, you did a nice kind of like coverage there. Of, you know, if you're taking psychedelics, it might indicate that you value other things in life, other perspectives, you have a different approach to health. And I think the same might be said for, for people in the cannabis industry as well. But uh, Nick, I know you love numbers. Numbers is your thing. You're always like, ah, this study had three people on it. Who cares? Um, what did you think? Uh, of this study. I want, I want the Aurora assessment here. Yeah, no, you, you already know exactly what I want to talk about. So the structure of the study, which I don't always favor these, we looked at a similar study before about uh, cannabis and health outcomes on like a large scale. So this is very similar to that. What they did uh, for this study is they accessed historical data from National Survey on Drug Use and Health between 2015 and 2018, and there were 171,000 adult uh, cases where they're like drawing data from, right? So that's cool. It's nice to have like a big data population, but then what you're seeing here is, or what you have to think about reasonably is confounding factors, right? So I can say, oh, I have data from 171,000 people, and overall, here are some trends, right? So that's what they're saying in this paper. So I'm appreciative of that. That's cool. But um, just because of all the potential for um, confounding factors and and other things we can't possibly understand looking at this uh, just like on a data screening kind of way, 
The only takeaway I personally can really get here is exactly what Sabrina said, which is that maybe people who are open to using psychedelics or use them are just people who also are more thoughtful about how they live or what they consume or that they exercise, or maybe they interact more peacefully with other people and get along better in their communities. We could do a survey about the community appreciation survey, if you use psychedelics or not. And you know what? It's probably going to come out with a similar outcome showing that it trends a little bit better for people who are open to these type of substances and also just kind of opening their minds and, and, and this kind of stuff. So, you know, kind of broad strokes, like they're, I'm appreciative of their broad strokes. If you want to get any more niche on it, I would have to kind of get critical of, of conclusions. Absolutely. And I think that it's a, it's a big survey, but it leaves a lot of questions again. They're not, they're not confirming drug use, but I thought it was interesting that there was an association, um, you know, with, uh, cancer and cardiovascular conditions. Um, that, that was really surprising. Now we are running short on HLI time and I want to give ATN and David a chance to comment. Otherwise, we're going to rock and roll into the game after a short break. So, um, ATN, any, anything you'd like to share about this research article from the Journal of Psychopharmacology? Ever been to a dead or a fish show? <laughs> <laughs> are you All saying right, well, those, those beer bellies are a sign of optimum health? <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it kind of goes to what was said prior, but, you know, uh, I've, uh, you know, my family has had issues um, with, um, you know, mental health, etc. Well, more like a subscription. But uh, I kind of have always wondered if they had uh, done psychedelics, what could have been because uh, they went the pharmaceutical route. But uh, we as veterans are working on SOPs for psychedelics because we find cannabis is a great daily palliative. But if you want to delve deeper, psychedelics uh, are the ones that help you deal and help you confront or, you know, work through your issues that we veterans have found specifically. We're a, you know, conglomeration of a small subset of the population. But, you know, we know better mental health matters. Healthy body, healthy mind. Having a healthy mind, then we won't have the 22 veterans a day killing themselves. So we have definitely mental health issues. Uh, it's key. And um, it's it's fascinating to see that, you know, they have, uh, you know, they are less in weight as well as some other cause dynamics, which kind of makes me wonder the parameters of the study itself. So I start to question wonders because that's why I said initially, have you ever been to a dead show or a fish show? You see all that you see the skinny, you see the obese, you see the party goer, you see the the self-enlightened, you see every different kind. It's a every person wants to alter their conscience at some point. So every person uh, could potentially use it. And to see such a large swath of humans using it and these are, of course, those that admit to it. We know there's also a subset that won't even admit ever to, you know, their drug use, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, uh, I've always kind of had that situation from back in the, you know, they used to give us a survey in high school. Raise your hands if you think drugs are bad. Okay, good. Drugs are bad. Yay. You know, um, this uh, Western mentality uh, that we have regarding uh, Western medicine is so... Um, cockeyed compared to how the rest of the world views things specifically. But I think our world would be a lot better and potentially happier 
uh, with more psychedelics in them, but I can't say that, you know, be all end all. It's going to make you, uh, you know, as you know, you're not going to be Jim fix the runner <laughs> just because you know, <laughs> psychedelics. Nice. Etienne, I just wanted to, to agree and, and like share a, a sentiment that you had just said. Um, another friend of the show who you all might know, Del Potter um, from uh, Leaf and from IA Biosciences, he says the exact same thing you just said, Etienne. Uh, he almost preaches it that uh, cannabis and the compounds from cannabis are great for treating symptoms, um, but uh, psychedelics. Uh, are great for treating the underlying cause, more of a solution to get out of the cycle of having symptoms and treating symptoms in some way. So uh, I just want to share that with the listeners that that's kind of a recurring theme from, you know, experienced people who come on the show and want to share their thoughts. You know, I'll, I'll just add my, I, I didn't think I'd have a GMP uh, statement to make, but this kind of comes back to like quality 101. And here's where I apply it in my life is, you know, the idea of like five whys or root cause analysis, let's get to the bottom of the problem, right? Let's not even just put a bandaid on, well, here, you know, pharmaceutical, take this drug and we'll reduce your anxiety. Well, what else is going to happen? And what happens when you go off of that drug, right? Um, is this actually sustainable or is this just a bandaid approach, um, you know, for a short term? And looking deeper, I think all the evidence suggests what are, why are people doing this? They're looking for happiness, right? They're looking for mitigation or treatment of symptoms. And would we be happier if we could get to the root cause of it and have a more holistic, um, positive experience in life? Yes, of course. And I think that's where this data just unequivocally continues to point towards in terms of we get one life, we just want to be happy. And what can we do to maximize our happiness and what methods and experiences and mindsets um, are, are eligible and will kind of create that pathway. Um, nice. All right. Well, we have to move along to our final segment. I want to thank you all for your rapid fire discussion. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, ATN, let's sign us all up for some research real soon. Um, all right, listener, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back with today's game. At Marku and Aurora, we leverage our deep experience in science and fundamental research to advise industry leaders and corporate teams. If you would like to open a discussion, please reach out to us using the contact form on our website. That's M-A-R-C-U-A-R-O-R-A.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. we're back welcome to today's game today our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought and this is a take on a new game we've been playing called guess which politician was high when they said this so we're going to share with you four quotes from a timeline of one politician and you panelists have to guess of the choices or maybe not the choices maybe it's someone else but i'll give you four options uh which politician said the following uh, during the course of their political career, starting in about 2002, about cannabis. So who is this politician? I'll give you the choices after this. But in 2002, this politician said, tried marijuana in my youth. 
in 2010 said the dangers of medical marijuana outweigh the benefits. In 2017, said, as of this date, I am unconvinced on recreational marijuana. If you choose to use marijuana recreationally, you know the law and refers to it as a gateway drug. In 2018, says, let's legalize the adult use of recreational marijuana once and for all. And a classic example of flip-flopping on the issue, who said the following over their timeline that they tried it, that the dangers outweigh the benefits, that they're unconvinced about the benefits of recreational marijuana and it's a gateway drug, and then most recently saying, let's just legalize adult use once and for all. Was it the current mayor of San Francisco, the current state comptroller of Florida, the current governor of New York, or the current governor of Massachusetts? I see some smiling faces. Does anyone want to provide a little, little comment? Any leads? Massachusetts, they have adult use. This could have easily been Massachusetts. Um, the, Start spreading the news. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dropping some bull today. <laughs> hmm. so, yeah, we got the classic politicians starting off by saying it's dangerous. They're unconvinced to just coming around when they smell the money and the benefits it could bring to their state. Let's legalize it. So I know it might be a close call on who it could be, um, but. Uh, you know, Nigam, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm going to do like the classic thing I always try to do, just like knocking some out. So, um, I don't think it's mayor of San Francisco, just because uh, rec legalization was already like actually happening, like on the ground in 2018. So it seems kind of late. Uh, they would have talked about it prior. Um, I think. <clears throat> I'm having a similar thought about Massachusetts. Also, rec on the ground started in 2018. So, uh, well, maybe, no, that's not true. It came a little bit later. But the point is, those two were already, like, advanced in a way. Um, mm -hmm. New York, I feel less convinced on. I'm leaning towards Florida. Um, and I know we seem to, like, give Florida a bad maybe. time on the show. The finance guy in Florida, right, dealing with unclaimed property, dealing with all sorts of finance issues. State comptroller might be like, Hey, and I'm just weird enough where I would look up the state controller's quotes about what they said. Hey, we live in a day and age where it sucks to be an elected official. I just want to say, like, it really sucks. I just can't get away with anything. One other you know? thing, too, is that um, I was just reading, uh, and, and this was like more of an opinion piece. There wasn't like a ton of data behind it. But I was reading this thing that in Florida, they have like the perfect nexus of, uh, you know, sans COVID, like huge volume of tourists. Um, mm -hmm. And when people go on vacation, what do they like to do? They like to party. They like to, you know, use substances and all this stuff. So they were saying that if Florida flips the switch to recreational, it could oh be like the largest recreational market, you know, by the numbers or whatever. So anyways, um, I could see that. I could see the the comptroller um, having that viewpoint. So I know I talked a lot here. I'm just going to guess Florida. I think it's the Florida comptroller. Hmm. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll, if I can please. throw in, I mean, you know, Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts. Um, I, I So I grew up in Massachusetts and I just love, you know, I've lived in New Orleans and all sorts of other places, you know, living in the South, the Democrat versus Republican idea. You know, Charlie Baker's a, a Republican. He would never pass muster south of the Mason-Dixon as a, as a Republican. Um, 
I think to Jayhan's point, they've already uh, they've already moved forward. Although Charlie Baker made the you know great move of uh, sarcasm there, right, of banning vapes during the first state to vape, ban vapes during the crisis, and also the only state, if I recall, to actually ban adult use uh, during COVID um, as a non-essential industry. So um, great, great on you, Charlie. You've got some some things to learn there. Maybe trying to be a Republican way. I think. I think it's it's Cuomo in uh, New York, but that's um, yeah, that'll, that's so where we my have, vote goes. We have one for the state comptroller of Florida, and David, you really think you think Cuomo would flip flop? I mean, I'm a New York resident. Do you 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 coming to me talking about my state on my podcast? Well, I'd about like to my say, governor. <laughs> I, I'd like to say maybe he's evolved a little bit. Um, you know, he, he's he's trying to catch up. So. That, that's all right, my all right. I'll take the compliment about my. I, I know he needs some credit these days too. He's kind of uh, he's got a few things going against him. If I he's recall, got a he's got a, a couple of bad joints rolled up in uh, <laughs> in his closet there. Um, ATN, uh, your thoughts on this? I mean, you're no stranger to politicians coming around and, and smelling what's cooking. Um, do you agree with David's assessment? Oh, 100%. Uh, the key giveaway was tried marijuana in his youth, which, of course, you know, very few politicians have admitted over that time. And I have been in this industry for 30 years, so I remember that because it's also the state that keeps saying they're going to do it. It's going to happen, and it never does. And they say it's going to happen now, but until there's actually a signature on it, I'll believe it. Until then, yeah, mm-hmm. I believe it's Governor Cuomo and, uh, yeah, or Cuono, as we used to call him. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's two for Cuomo. Uh, <laughs> the numbers keep adding up. Um, anyway, uh, Sabrina, do you agree with ATN and David, or are you, you, you feeling like maybe it's the current governor of Massachusetts? Um, uh, no, I, I think it's Cuomo as well. Um, you know, he would be open enough to, uh, say that he's tried it back in 2002 when it wasn't exactly popular to admit to something like that. Um, you know, and then the kind of follows along with what's politically appropriate at the time. And then to, to flip-flop from 2017 to 2018, if I'm not mistaken, he was running again for governor in 2018 against a candidate who was very much openly uh, in support of legalization. And so that is why I've decided that I think it's Cuomo because of that quick turnaround uh, from 2017 to 2018. You know a little bit about politics, don't you, Sabrina? This oh, is not your first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> They're in cycle. They'll say anything. <laughs> All right. So... Which politician tried marijuana in their youth, admitted to that at the turn of the century, and within a span of eight years, said that the dangers outweigh the benefits, and cited recreational cannabis as a gateway drug, and then turned around and said, let's just legalize it once and for all. If you found it hard to believe that it was the current mayor of San Francisco, that is because it wasn't. It definitely was not the current mayor of San Francisco. And if you thought, hey, it just might be the state comptroller of Florida, well, it isn't. And so for those of you who held on and stuck to your guns, it was the current governor of New York. Governor Cuomo's position uh, has evolved (laughs) over time on his views on cannabis as his his statement. So congratulations, ATN, Sabrina, and David. Thank you so much. Um, Well, listener, 
that's our show for today. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are doing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. The show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. Uh, thank you for thank you to our podcast cover artist Lena Lee for crafting custom artwork for each episode. Be sure to check out her artwork and her webpage in the show notes. All right, listener, thank you so much. 